A lot of law firms made a lot of money by helping companies with deals and taking companies public. Today on the podcast, we look at which firms did the best and why the ones at the top are exactly the ones you would expect. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So you know that saying, a rising tide lifts all boats? That may be true, but for our purposes on today's episode, the biggest boats get lifted the most. We're talking about the year in M&A and IPO activity in the legal world, and it seems like it was a good year for everyone, but especially for the firms that seem to always have good years. In other words, it was a the rich get richer kind of year. Global M&A activity hit a staggering $5 trillion this year, up from $3.5 trillion just in 2020, and three-fourths of this, 75%, was handled by just the top 20 largest law firms. To break this down, we have two folks from the Bloomberg Law Newsroom, Roy Strom and Ricky Chen. And we're going to start off with Roy talking about the year in IPOs. And of course, you can't talk about IPOs in 2021 without talking about SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. These are essentially blank check companies founded to purchase a private company and take that private company public. Roy says the frenzied SPAC boom has been incredibly lucrative for big law. It was such a small market before, and SPACs didn't always have the greatest reputation. A lot of big law firms were sort of leery to get into the market. Um, But when they took off, big law firms that handle some of the biggest transactions and do, you know, the biggest traditional IPOs really started um, clamoring into the market. At least one in particular, a sort of a boutique Wall Street corporate firm called Elenoff Grossman that had kind of pioneered uh, the SPAC market and handled a really big proportion of the deals before they became so popular. They handled uh, as many deals or more than any other firm. Um, But then the other roster of firms that handled the work are some of the biggest in the country. Kirkland and Ellis was really active, White and Case, Scadden, Davis Polk, Ropes and Gray. This market coming along, giving them so much work, it's part of the reason why big law firms, why the sort of most prestigious big law firms in 2021 really outpaced the rest, um, in addition to some of the deals um, that Ricky will tell us about. They did all that work, too. So kind of like a perfect storm for these firms. Yeah. One of the interesting things, though, about the story that you just wrote is that almost to a person, every attorney you talk to said that they expect the this to really cool down in 2022, that SPACs aren't going to be a huge source of revenue for law firms the way they were in 2021. Can you talk a little bit about that, about why everyone expects SPACs to kind of be a flash in the pan and not really last into this year? Yeah, I don't know. Flash in the pan might be strong. I uh, uh, I think some people think that this market, I think they they think it will stick around. It's just these SPAC IPOs raised more than $160 billion last year, which was more than twice what they raised in 2020, which was, you know, didn't 2019 didn't even compare. And so there was this giant explosion and 2021 saw this sort of crest in the excitement, investors' excitement around SPAC IPOs. I think nobody anticipates happening again. 
but they do expect that the SPAC IPO market will stay, you know, to some degree healthier than it was before 2020 or busier than it was before 2020. But there are some pretty significant headwinds that the market faces. And the two uh, most uh, common that I heard about were uh, regulatory concerns and the historic trading performance of SPAC IPOs. Yeah, it's, it sounds like they haven't really performed as well as one would hope. Uh, I think you said something like, you know, 10% worse than the market at large. That's that's not too good. Yeah, Bloomberg News had done some really good uh, data around how well companies trade after they uh, perform a merger with these SPAC IPOs. And the Bloomberg analysis found that they significantly trailed uh, the broader market. Uh, or or traditional IPOs um, from the time of the announcements. And so people are concerned that investors will see that underperformance and they won't want to invest. Before we move on to Ricky, I have one more question for you on SPACs. It seems like even if the, the SPAC trend really cools down this year, that you know Latham & Watkins, Davis Polk, um, Skadden, they'll be pretty fine, I'm guessing, in terms of the revenue that they bring in. What do you see for a firm like Elanoff that's a little bit smaller and, and maybe a little more reliant on revenues from SPACs? Yeah, Elanoff Grossman is a really interesting firm. And the uh, Douglas Elanoff is um, someone who really did sort of pioneer this SPAC practice. And I've spoken with him and asked him those questions. And he has always said that his law firm is, you know, really nimble and they're always sort of riding new waves and interested in new types of corporate practice areas that big law firms haven't yet really found attractive. And so I think that um, Elanoff Grossman will probably continue to have uh, its fair share of SPAC work going into the future. Um, But their partner there, he would tell you that they're also interested in a bunch of other areas. So He's really big into crowdfunding. He thinks that crowdfunding is going to be a new sort of investing phenomenon. And uh, I think he helped invest in a technology, like a legal technology company that he likens to TurboTax for crowdfunding disclosures. So that's sort of his next big thing. All right. Well, from uh, IPOs to M&A, uh, let's move on to Ricky Chen here. Um you know, M&A activity uh, was really, really hot in 2021. Um, you know, can you give me a sense of just how hot it was and, and who were the big winners here? Absolutely. So last year was another record-breaking year for M&A. Um, I think global M&A activity reached roughly $5 trillion, which is a massive amount. And even more surprising, uh, the top 20 law firms that manage these deals worked on about 75% of that $5 trillion in volume. So these firms were incredibly busy, uh, but the top deal-making firms were the usual suspects uh, year over year. Kirkland & Ellis actually came out as the biggest global deal-maker by a pretty comfortable margin. Uh, the firm worked on about 946 transactions last year, worth more than $443 billion. Uh, the other top firms are well-known M&A experts that I think Roy has already mentioned, such as Wachtell, Latham & Watkins, Simpson Thatcher, and Skadden. Um, the top 20 firms that worked on these deals also included some British magic circle firms like Freshfields and Allen & Overy. 
You had some great data in your story uh, about the number of deals and the size of deals. And, you know, you, um, you know, showed that Wachtell and Cravath really, uh, you know, may not be number one in terms of the overall value of the deals that they've done, but the average uh, value of the deals is enormous. Like it sounds like they, basically it sounds like they may have worked on fewer deals, but the deals that they worked on are huge. Can, am I interpreting that right? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's definitely true. So, you know, Kirkland and Ellis, as we said, is known for working on a massive number of deals. Last year, they worked on some something close to a thousand different transactions, um, but their average value per deal was closer to $500 million. As you mentioned, Wachtell and Cravath, they work on far fewer deals and the average deal size for them is way, way, way higher. So I, I think for last year, Wachtell's average deal size was $3.8 billion. Firms like Kirkland and Ellis and the other firms in the top 20, their average deal size was closer to half a billion dollars. Uh, Cravath, on the other hand, had uh, $4 billion on average per deal. So these are obviously just massive deals that Wachtell and Cravath work on, and they don't need to rely on hundreds of smaller deals. Um, and it, this really depends on the kind of service that the firm offers and what their priorities are. So Kirkland and Ellis, uh, one of their partners told me that the firm prides itself on its ability to advise clients on any type of deal, whether it's small, medium, large, in any jurisdiction. Um, and that's something that you know they value a lot. Firms like Wachtell, they, they care a lot more about the largest, most significant deals, the ones that are market moving. And in many cases, that translates to deals that are valued really, really high. Uh, firms like Kirkland and Ellis and Simpson and Thatcher, they also do a large number of private equity deals, which I guess are probably uh, at a lower value than a lot of corporate strategic deals. Um, for Wachtell and Cravath, private equity makes up a far smaller portion of their overall deals. Yeah. Um, let's now look ahead to 2022, though. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I found interesting in your story was that one of the reasons why 2021 was uh, such a big year was because of cheap money. You know, interest rates are still very, very low. I just don't see that happening uh, or continuing on in 2022. Uh, if the Fed raises interest rates uh, as they're expected to do this year, how will that affect uh, the you know the M and A market uh, this year? If that happens, I don't think it would be completely catastrophic. Oh, really? It could definitely impact the market and you know slow things down. But the M and A partners that I spoke with seem pretty confident in the desire of companies and shareholders for continued M and A activity despite any you know economic forces like that. Um, these transactions, they've told me, are often a way for companies to really quickly achieve growth and ESG goals. Um, that could be digitalization, decarbonization, etc. And shareholder activists know this. And now, more than a year since the pandemic started, a lot of them are eager for companies to move forward with these deals. Um, some of the M&A partners I spoke with have also said that a lot of the dry powder in the market now is a remnant of investor caution during the first months of the pandemic. In early 2020, nobody knew how long the pandemic was going to last or if it was going to impact business. And a lot of transactions at the time were delayed or just, uh, you know, put aside completely. And now that things are relatively more stable, companies and investors are a lot more willing to deploy all that cash. And a lot of partners don't feel like that's going to change this year or next. Mm. All right. Well, uh, you heard it here first. Uh, that was Ricky Chen and Roy Strom speaking with us uh, on On the Merits. Uh, thank you guys so much for talking. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having us. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, our editor, Cheryl Sines, and our executive producer is Josh Block. 
Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. That's B as in brr, it's cold outside. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.